Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly, as I ought to speak. The word of the Lord. Good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. We're working through the book of Ephesians, and we are in really the last series. We break the book up into many series, and this last series is called Outfitted because we're looking at how God outfits us to face the challenges of life, right? And the metaphor in this passage is um, the full armor of God. We We are told to put on the full armor of God so that we can stand in the evil day. When things go wrong, when things are not going the way we want them to go, we are either going to stand on our own strength or His. We'll stand on His record or our own. We will be seeking to um, advance our own cause or follow Him in advancing His. And, and the offer of this passage is an offer of tremendous freedom and, and tremendous power. God is giving us the opportunity of wearing His armor. In other words, moving forward in His identity in the challenges of life. And so as we've talked about each of the pieces of armor, we've talked about how this is really um, us looking at who God is and what He's done and how it applies to different ways we move forward in life. And up to this point, we've pretty much put on all the armor. If you've been following along in the series, um, you're fully outfitted at this point as far as your, your armor. You, you've got your, your belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation and the shoes made fit through the readiness of the gospel. And, and last week, you we picked up the shield of faith. This week, you get to pick up your weapon. This week, we, we go to the, the only weapon in the um, description, which is the sword. Um, now, obviously, in battle, there would have been some other weapons. There were times when they would use spears or, or um, bows and arrows or things like that. But, but the average foot soldier in the Roman army, they were all equipped with swords. And, and these swords were um, very specific kinds of swords. They were, they were fairly short. They were only about two feet long. They were double-edged. And it would, the design was that you would, you would move forward behind your big shield so that all the arrows would come down and you'd be protected until you got close enough. And then when you got close enough, you'd be able to, to you know, slash and jab and, and cut with this short knife. It was designed to be used in hand-to-hand combat in very close quarters. This was not a, a double-handed broadsword. Um, these were, were meant to be quick and nimble and deadly. And honestly, deadly, um, not just um, for um, the, uh, the people we are fighting, but potentially deadly for us. And these swords are um, the Word of God. That's what our, our Scripture tells us. Um, how many of you, um, when you're a kid, when I, when I say sword drill, you know what I'm talking about? I see, yeah, you don't have to raise your hand. 
what I just did is identified who grew up in evangelical Christian homes um, because sword drills were pretty much the standard of every kid's ministry, right? Um, I was not raised in an evangelical Christian home, and these were not part of my upbringing. I became a believer in my late teens and in my early 20s. When I moved into ministry, I was introduced to these things. Um, I would walk in, and I'd be working with a bunch of youth, and all of a sudden, they'd all be sitting there with their Bibles in the air. And I'm like, what are you doing, right? And they're like, sword drill, man, sword drill, don't you? I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. And then some, you know, one of the other workers who was a little bit more merciful would just be like, John 3.16. So they'd all drop their Bibles, flip open really fast, and, and the first person to find it would stand up and read it. And they won, right? They won. That's what a sword drill was. If you weren't raised in, in a Christian home, um, don't worry. You weren't, you weren't robbed of much here. You, you missed out on this, but... Um, that's really all it was. This, this speed drill, basically, of being able to sit down, find that passage, stand up and read it, right? And the idea behind this was that somehow it was going to equip Christian young people to love the Bible more. I, I just have my suspicions it didn't work real well. I, I just don't think that that's a great tool to achieve that end. I, I think more than likely it was actually much more successful in producing little Pharisees than God-loving little Christians, right? That's not an exercise that leads you to love the God of the Bible through discovering him in the Bible. That really has more to do. And I know this because I, I, I would work with the kids that were like fighting for the championship, you know? Like they knew who their nemesis was, right? It's Betty. Betty beats me every year. This year I'm going to stab her in the heart, you know? Like, like so competitive, right? Well, good job. You found that verse great. Um, here's the deal, you guys. We're coming to the Word of God. This is a weapon that is life-giving or life-taking, like every weapon. And if you don't know how to use it, it can kill you. And there are those that have used the Bible to their own destruction. And there are those that instead have found in the Bible the power of life. We need to come to this weapon with respect and with an understanding of how we're supposed to approach it, if we are, in fact, going to discover its power. So it is, it is described as a sword, right? There's a lot of metaphors in Scripture to describe the Bible. It's a lamp or a light or it's food. Well, here it's described as, as a sword. A lot of swords throughout history became very famous because they were used in famous battles or by famous people, right? Uh, so a lot of times they become associated with the king or the warrior who is, who is using them, right? So if I say the, the, the name Excalibur, most people understand, like most people know that's associated with the legends of King Arthur, right? With that season of, of great victory in Britain's history where King Arthur ha, had a, a reign of, of victory and peace, right? So Excalibur became associated with that. It was a sword that became associated with that victory, right? Andril, this, this sword of Aragorn. Those of you who are nerds, you know, man, this is like Lord of the Rings, a sword that was broken and put back together, right? It's a sword associated with ultimate triumph. What's interesting is the way our passage describes the sword. Take a look at it. It doesn't just say, take up the sword of the word. What does it say? Take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. See, Paul takes care to point out whose sword it is. He wants us to pay attention to who owns this thing, that it is, in fact, the sword of the Spirit, that the Spirit owns it, and that it is His tool. And kind of where we're going this morning is this. If we're going to walk 
in the power of the sword, we have to learn to submit to its owner. If we're going to walk in the power of the sword so that it is fighting for life in us and for us, we need to learn to walk in submission to its owner. Now, calling the Bible the sword of the Spirit is interesting because what that does is it identifies that the Bible, in fact, belongs to the Spirit of God, um, as it does, because if you think about it, that's, in fact, how we got it. Historically, we're talking about a, um, a, a process called inspiration where the Spirit of God came on humans, people who wrote poetry, history, letters, prophecy, and, and, and he inspired them to write God's Word. Now, what's interesting is the way he did that. He didn't dictate. He didn't show up and basically say, hey, write this down, okay? I will give you the words. You just jot them down. He, in fact, inhabited the creative faculties of the individual using their personality, using their skills, using their their personal uh, history um, to craft something that came from them but was, in fact, inspired by God. So they wrote the letter. It was unique to them, but it was, in fact, from God. And, And you can see that when you read the New Testament. Right? When you come to the Gospels, there's four Gospels written by four different men, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you can see the characteristic differences of the people who wrote them. Right? When you read Mark, Mark is this, this short Gospel that, that, man, there's an economy of words. It is the shortest of the Gospels. Um, he, there are no wasted words, no wasted comments. Mark is like quick. In fact, the, one of the key words through the whole letter is suddenly. This idea of just sudden, quick, we're going to just get to the point, right? And then you read the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John, man, is filled with all these incredible metaphors. John was the most poetic of the New Testament writers. And when you read his letters, man, he just, he just sits in the tension of these beautiful metaphors that Jesus is light, that, that Jesus is, you know, he just pulls out the tension, right? Poetically, because that's his personality coming through. And so the Spirit of God came on individuals and used their individual skills and, and, and history and the rest of that to write things that came together to produce what we call the Bible. Now, I get it if, if you are, are, are kind of a skeptic, if you're just kind of here and you're asking questions and, um, you know, checking this thing out. I'm glad you're here, and I, and I know that this is probably um, one of those pieces where you're like, that sounds a little bit wacky. <laughs> that, that just sounds weird. I get that. And honestly, if you've been a believer for an incredibly long time and you've become overcomfortable with the way this thing was produced, um, it's good for you to once again be kind of like, holy cow, that is pretty crazy and incredible, okay? Because it is. Here's the thing, though. The product proves the process. The Bible is the most remarkable book on the face of the earth. I mean, think about it, you guys. It was written over a span of about 2,000 years. It was written in three different languages. In 2,000 years, it was written over the course of different cultural movements, times, uh, values. It was written by um, over 40 different authors during that period of time. There are 66 books, what we call books, these, these books of poetry and history and letters that combine to make this book. And yet, when you read it, It tells a single story. That's remarkable. 
When I was going through college, I was an English major and, and a bit of an overachiever, which meant that I was constantly looking for opportunities to put more work on my plate. And um, as a result, I did something that was really stupid. I became the copy editor of the college yearbook. I don't know if any of you have ever worked on a college yearbook project. It's like trying to manage monkeys. I mean, it just doesn't work real well. You got people that are just doing their own thing, distracted by life, not the most mature people on the face of the earth. And you're trying to produce something that is unified in theme, in vision, in in, in for my part, and the words part, I wanted it unified in, in feel so that when you read through it, there was a, a sense of continuity. It was incredibly hard to do when you dealt with so many different amateur writers. Well, we were all amateurs, but, but each person, you know, like this person was really horrible at grammar, and this person only used short sentences, and this person, their sentences were like 5,000 miles long every time. And you're trying to produce something that ultimately had a unified feel to it. It was incredibly difficult, and we pretty much failed, like most college yearbooks do, right? But think about this. That was a single book written over the course of a single year with a single editor. The Bible was written over 2,000 years. There was no um, syllabus written ahead of time telling people how to write it or where to go with this thing. It was produced by people who were living life who were describing what was going on at their time, who had no idea what was coming. And yet the entire book tells a single story. And the entire story revolves around a single hero by the name of Jesus. Unlike every other sacred text, most sacred texts were written in very small periods of time, and they tend to be collections of fables or wisdom literature or or somewhat related um, content. The Bible tells a single story with a single hero. And I can't exaggerate that too much. Every time when you read through the Bible, you go through the Old Testament, man, you just, you see um, every turn, every shadow, hints of the hero. And sometimes the hints are way more than hints. Sometimes it comes right out and tells you exactly who he's going to be. Right? You've got passages like Isaiah 53, where a thousand years in advance, man, basically Isaiah is like, he's going to be pierced for our transgressions, wounded for our sins, like a sheep led to the slaughter. He won't open his mouth before his accusers. He will be pierced and then buried in the tomb of a rich man. I mean, more than just a hint, like a spotlight saying, there's a hero coming. And then we're going to see him. It's incredible. This is, this is the most incredible book on the face of the earth. The product proves the process. You couldn't have done this had you planned to do it. This is a project that no human manager could have ever managed, right? Now, I'm going to give you a little, little hint of what's coming. Next week is our last week in Ephesians. Next week is, is a sermon called Stand, and we're going to be looking at the power of prayer when it comes to putting on armor. It's, it's, so that's where we're going. But after that, we're going on to a sermon series that's called um, Shadows of Christ. And we're going to be walking through the Old Testament and basically looking at these hints, these turns, these predictions, and showing how there is a single storyline. There's lots of subplots. There's lots of twists and turns to the storyline, like every story has, uh, every good story has, but it inexorably moves toward uh, a single point, a single conflict with a single hero. And, and, And this is where I'm going with it. I think that ultimately, as we look at the stories that were recorded before us, it helps us understand our story. Because the same storytelling God that was weaving all of history together before Christ is still weaving all of history together after Christ. Your story is a significant subplot in God's plan to redeem and restore. 
And so as we unpack these series of stories, I'm hoping that'll help us discover how God is working in our story um, for the same purpose. So just to give you a little glimpse of, of where we're going um, after we come out of Ephesians. So here's the point, you guys. The Bible is an incredible book. It's an incredible book. It is a, a single story, and it is His story. And by His, I mean the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who told this story. The reason it is unified and tells of a single um, Savior is that even though it was written by, by, by over 40 different authors, it was written by one author. There was one author using the faculties of all of these individuals to produce a single book. It's His story, His tool, His weapon, and it is living and it is powerful. Take a look at this verse. This is Hebrews 4.12. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You know, when you open this thing up and you read it, this is what I want you to catch right now, you guys. This isn't just words on a page. This isn't just a, a dead... Um, book of history, something that you open up to study, to master, um, to show yourself witty or intelligent or proficient. When you open this up, you're not just reading it, it's reading you. When, When you open this up, you're not just engaging the words on the page, the Spirit is using the words on the page to engage and change you. It is living and active because it is, an, it is a gift from the Spirit of God and the primary tool the Spirit of God uses to change us into the image of the Son of God. It is living and active and it is powerful and it is precise, which is why we need to use it carefully and we need to use it respectfully because there are right ways and there are wrong ways to take up this weapon. There are ways that will lead us to life and ways that will take us away. So if we're going to walk in its power, we need to learn what it means to walk in submission to its owner. So what does this look like in real life for us? What does it look like as we engage spiritual challenges in our lives, right? When we're prone to discouragement, when we're being tempted to sin, when we are attacked and we feel like God is far away and doesn't love us that maybe he doesn't even exist. When we are just going through the wear and tear of doing life in this broken world as broken people, how does the word of God equip us as a weapon for this spiritual war? I think the best way to explore that, honestly, is by looking at an example from Jesus's life. It's an incredible passage of scripture. And I'm going to ask you to turn there. It's in Matthew chapter four. Now, if you don't have your Bible, pick one up. This is a sermon on the Word of God. You're going to pick it up and you're going to turn, okay? So if you don't have one, look around you. There's one on the floor and the chair. Uh, If you want to turn on your iPhone and flip over there, your iPad, that works great too. The Word of God is just as effective in digital format as in print, okay? So so go to Matthew chapter 4. If you don't know where that is, in our Bibles, that is page 809, okay? Page 809 in our Bibles. And as you're turning there, I want to give you a little bit of background on this. Um, First of all, we know that Jesus is pretty unique. I mean, that's kind of understating, isn't it? Um, Jesus is the Son of God, right? Uh, he, he, is, he is God incarnate, right? God on mission, taking on flesh. But he's human. He's fully God and fully human. And when he went through this life, he didn't go through this life in the power of his deity. 
He went through this life as a human, a perfect human, but a human. Which is why the, the, the Bible tells us that as he grew up, he grew in wisdom and in stature. How can God grow in wisdom? There's the mystery of the incarnation. We don't fully understand it, but we do know this, that, that Jesus came to live the human life every other human failed to live. That they, when he went through life, he went through life as a man, which meant he was going through life in submission to God. He wasn't going through life saying, I am Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. I will do all things by my own power and my own name. He went through life saying, I am Jesus, the man you were created to be. And I'm living the life you were created to live in submission to God. I will live a life of following, not leading, of being empowered, not exercising my own power. That's important to catch because when we come to this text, what we're going to see is that he gives us an example of what it means to engage life on a spiritual level and to engage spiritual battle as humans. So take a look at this because we're going to see Satan is going to come and attack him. Um, Chapter 4, look at verses 1 and 2 to set the scene. And Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Stop there. Into the wilderness. That, that, That would be the wild area outside of Israel. So we're talking about desert land, okay? Access to water, limited access to food, but specifically he's led up there too fast. So during this period of time, while he has access to water, he's, he's not going to eat. Now, this was right after he was baptized. This was right at the beginning of his public ministry. Jesus lived a life basically uh, like normal, but there came a point where it was like, okay, the Spirit said, now's the time to begin your public ministry. And he did that by going to John the Baptist and, and being baptized, right? And that was kind of his public coming out party saying, look, I am the Messiah and I'm here to do some work. Immediately after that, the Spirit says, all right, uh, we're in a spiritual war. Let's get this thing on. I'm going to lead you out into the desert, into a solitary, uncomfortable, difficult place, and let's go to war. Verse 2, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. <laughs> I don't know about you, but if I skip lunch, I get irritable. You know what I'm saying? Like I go without one meal and I get kind of grumpy. I go without two meals and I get downright ornery. Like I'm ready for a fight, Right? Because when I get hungry, I'm uncomfortable. When I'm uncomfortable, I'm unpleasant, right? Anybody relate with this? Can you imagine going 40 days without food? Think about this, you guys. What this means is that his body was actually beginning the process of digesting itself. He was in the initial stages of starvation, he had been out in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. You think he's been sleeping real well? Great rest? Okay, he is in an incredibly weakened condition. And that's when Satan shows up. Satan doesn't normally attack us when we're at our height. He doesn't normally attack us when we're full of joy and full of the Spirit and praising God. But he always attacks us in the valley. Right? It's not the mountaintop, it's the valley. It's when we are weakest, when we are most prone to feel self-indulgent, self-pity, sorry for ourselves. And he's going to come attack us with his primary weapon. Now, what is his primary weapon? We talked about this before. His primary weapon, like whenever Satan shows up in movies, like in hollow, hollow, you know, his weapon seems to be like green puke and spinning heads. You know what I'm saying? Like, like when he shows up, man, there's knives flowing through the air and things levitating and glowing eyes. And that's like his weapon is just fear, right? That's not his weapon. It's one of his weapons, but his primary weapon is deceit. 
Because he knows if he can get us to believe a lie, we'll destroy ourselves. His work is done. His job, his methodology is to try and plant a lie into our thinking so that we misperceive who God is and we misperceive who we are, and then we will happily destroy ourselves, right? And so he comes in with deceit with the goal of getting us to mistrust God and become self-sufficient. That's his goal. The goal of all of his deceit is ultimately to get us to doubt God, his character or his power, and then move out in self-sufficiency instead of obedience and dependence. So, so what he's trying to do is get, a, get us to sin, and that's exactly what he's doing with, with Jesus. He's attacking him to try and get him um, to doubt God. In fact, let's take a look. Verse 3, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of... What's he doing right there? If you're the Son of God, what's he, what's he trying to do right there? Plant doubt. He's not saying, you're not the Son of God. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, man, right now you're feeling pretty lonely, aren't you? You're feeling pretty beat up. You're feeling pretty worn down. You're feeling pretty hungry. You feel like you're dying. You're feeling like God's far away from you. What if you're not the Son of God? What if God has abandoned you? What if God doesn't love you? Do you see? He's just, he's not saying anything. <laughs> he's asking a provocative question that's designed to inspire doubt. It's an accusation. It's an accusation against God. And what he's saying is, you know, God's not being very fair to you right now. God's not being very loving to you right now. God's not really caring for you right now. Don't you agree? He comes in and he attacks who Jesus is before he attacks what Jesus does. So he's trying to inspire doubt. And then he goes on and he says, command these stones to become loaves of bread. If you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. All right, Jesus obviously had the power to do this and Satan knew this. John chapter one tells us that Jesus is in fact, the word was God and the word was with God and, and everything that was created was created by him. Nothing that was created was created without him. You know what that means? Jesus created Satan. Hmm. So, so Satan knows full well that Jesus has the power to turn rocks into bread, right? He doesn't doubt his power. What he's doing is showing up and saying, aren't you hungry? Well, if you're the son of God, why don't you prove it? Turn these stones into bread. Aren't you hungry? Doubting God's provision doubting God's care, and then moving into an act of self-sufficiency. Who led Jesus into the wilderness? The Spirit. Whose will was it that he be in the Spirit and fasting? The Spirit's. Do you see that this is an act of obedience? Jesus being in the wilderness and suffering in this way is an act of obedience. When God brings suffering into our lives that is outside of our control... It is, it, is a, it is an invitation, a request, a command to obedience. This is God's will. And Jesus knows this because the Spirit led him out there. So what is, what is Satan basically saying? He's saying, doubt God's character. And instead of waiting for God to provide for you, because he's obviously not, provide for yourself. And you know what? Let's just make it even kind of righteous, because this will just be a demonstration of your messianic power. You are the Messiah. 
You have the right to do this. Do it and, and, and manifest your glory. Jesus responds, verse 4, but he answered him, it is written. What does that tell us? What's he responding with? When he says, it is written, so he's like, you know, quoting the Wall Street Journal, and he's quoting scripture, right? He's, he's saying, I have an authority outside of myself. He's using the sword of the Spirit. He's using the Word of God. His primary weapon in combating spiritual attack is the Word of God. So he comes back and he says, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Satan says, Turn these rocks into stone. Jesus comes back and says, Look, man, Scripture tells me I don't live by bread alone. I live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Pulls out the dagger of the word and combats the attack of Satan. Now, uh, let me just ask you something as we kind of look at the tension of this. It's interesting to me. As I was thinking about this, how does that stab Satan? It seems like it does more to actually encourage Jesus' heart, which is an interesting way to do it. I'm just kind of, as I've been weighing through this, trying to figure out how this works in my own life, just thinking about this. You ever been like just seriously tempted? I know you have. I have, right? Like seriously tempted. Like everything in you wants to go to that bad thing, whatever it is, right? Whether it's, it's pornography or inappropriate sexual relationship or lying to protect your reputation or cheating to get more money or whatever it is, man, there's just something in you that is driven. You just like everything in you wants this thing, right? And you know that it's spiritual, right? That you know that, the, you know, you don't know if Satan's there attacking you, but you do know that this is a spiritual temptation. You're being attacked on a spiritual level, right? How does it work for you if you're just like, you know what? I'm feeling tempted to cheat on my taxes because I want this money. But God says, thou shalt not lie. Whoo, man, glad that temptation's over. Ah, right? You just quote a rule. Freeze you, right? No more temptation. Yeah. No, <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Some of you have tried this. You're like, well, God's word tells me I'm not supposed to do that. Why am I still so tempted? Why is everything in me still yearning to go there? Here's the deal, you guys. Rules have no power to give life. Jesus is not reminding himself of a rule. Thou shalt not turn bread or rocks into bread. He's reminding himself of a promise. See, this verse isn't just about don't do this. It's about I've got something better for you. See, listen to this verse. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's a promise of something better. When we are tempted, we use the word to remind ourselves that there is something better than what we're being tempted with. There's a better promise on the table. It's not that our desire is wrong. Our desire is for something good. We're just trying to take a good thing and turn it into an ultimate thing. The word of God redirects our appetites. We can come back in with a promise that not only am I not supposed to do this, but it's because there is something better. God has promised me something better than this temptation can deliver. Because every rule is not a limitation, but a pathway into greater life. When we approach the Word of God, it's not about do's and don'ts. It's not about do this and don't do that and you'll be approved and then you'll be condemned. 
each of these is basically an invitation from God back into living life the way he designed it to be lived. There's something better. And what Jesus is saying to Satan in this temptation is there something better than the bread you want me to eat? I am starving right now. Everything in me is yearning for food, but there is something better. And that's obedience. Because God's going to feed my heart with something that is better than bread. God is going to feed my heart with joy and purpose and meaning. And you guys know as well as I do, it doesn't matter how full your belly is. If you lack those things, your life lacks everything. And that's the very thing that enables you to suffer discomfort and pain in this life, knowing that God has something better. Jesus is reminding himself. The way the word, of the, the God, the, the word is used here is, is basically he's reminding himself of the promise of God in the face of temptation. And by reminding himself of the promise of God, it takes his eye off the temptation and puts it back on the thing he should truly desire. And the temptation becomes less attractive. The temptation becomes less alluring because you're bringing the light of the word in and you can see that this is in fact a substitute for genuine life and it will only bring death. So Satan comes in and says, you can't trust God's provision. Jesus uses the word of God to bring the light back on and says, I can trust God's provision. And in fact, there's something better than what you are tempting me with. He goes on in verses five through seven. Then the devil took him to the holy city. That would be the city of Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Now, remember the temple is where the sacrifices were made, right? Jesus is the Messiah, (laughs) the coming king. Who should be worshiped in the temple? Jesus. This is his house, right? Satan takes him, puts him on the pinnacle of the temple, which would have been the highest point in the city. And from that vantage point, he would have looked down and seen in the courtyard the priests readying the daily sacrifices. He would have seen the lambs being readied for slaughter. You know what that would have reminded him of? What was coming that his mission was, in fact, to be slaughtered. That his mission was to go to the cross. All of those animal sacrifices were shadows of the ultimate sacrifice. That was God's way of foreshadowing that there would be an ultimate sacrifice that would pay the genuine price of sin. And Jesus would be that sacrifice. He was on mission to ultimately die. So Satan takes him up to the pinnacle of the temple and shows him everything that's been promised and the pain that's going to be in front of him in order to achieve it. And then he says to him, if you are the son of God, what's he doing? He's continuing to attack. He's like, all right, you deflected it the first time. Let's keep going. He doesn't give up. He's persistent. Let's keep planting this. If you are, in fact, the son of God, throw yourself down from the pinnacle. Okay? If he were to do that, everybody would see it. It'd be one of the most visible things he could have done. Right? And had he done it, everybody would have known This was the Messiah. You know why? Because look what the verses say. And this is great, man. Satan quotes the Bible. Just because somebody uses Scripture to justify their position doesn't mean they're speaking for God. There are a lot of people that twist Scripture, Satan included, to ultimately try to motivate ungodly behavior and ungodly attitudes. So he quotes Scripture, as it is written... He will command his angels concerning you. This was a prophecy about the Messiah, a prophecy about Jesus. And what he's saying is God's already promised that the angels will protect you. 
Throw yourself from the pinnacle. If you're the son of God, throw yourself off. God has promised that the angels will protect you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. God has promised that you you won't be harmed, that the angels will come and rescue you. And if you were to do that, everybody in the courtyard, all the people of Israel would see it. And they would recognize you as the Messiah. And the subtle hint here is maybe you wouldn't have to die. Maybe there's another way to accomplish the goal than to go to the cross. Maybe this thing could be accomplished in a different way. What's what's he doing? Planting doubt about the character of God and trying to lead to behavior that is self-sufficient instead of obedient. Where I solve my own problems in my own way because I think I know better than God. And Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He comes back, pulls out the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and counters the attack. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, let's, last week during the sermon, um, we talked about the shield of faith. And I, and I told you that in order to grow your faith, you have to test your faith, right? That was one of the things we talked about, that, that you need to take risks in your faith, to grow your faith. You need to put God's faithfulness to the test. Why is that wrong for Jesus here? Why is it wrong for Jesus to put God to the test? And why is it right for for me to tell you to do it? Because we're talking about two different goals here. What I told you was you need to put your faith to the test in obedience to God. God has told you to do certain things and you're reluctant to do them because you're timid or you're afraid or or you're holding back. And I'm telling you, be bold in your obedience to God. Take risks in your obedience to God because in doing so, you will strengthen your faith. You will grow your shield. It will become a greater protection to you and a greater comfort to you because you will find God truly faithful as you take risks in obedience to him. But Jesus is not being tempted to be obedient. He's being tempted to be disobedient. Satan is basically saying, God's not doing what you want him to do, so test him to force his hand. See if you can lead the one who's supposed to be leading. Sometimes we do this, right? We put God to the test, not because we want to prove him faithful, but because we want to force his hand to do a specific thing we want him to do. It's not about our obedience. It's about our control. Jesus is being tested Uh, um, not to be obedient, but to ultimately put his plan above God's. And Jesus responds, look, you're not going to put the Lord God to the test. I've I've been told I'm supposed to simply follow and obey. He already knows what he's been asked to do. He was led by the Spirit to the wilderness to fast and to wait. So he contents his heart in that place of suffering, that it is God's will during this season for him to be there. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So we see him testing God's timing. And now we're going to see him test, ultimately, God's heart in verses uh, 8 through 10. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. All right, so he one-ups it. You guys, when Jesus came, he didn't come simply to redeem the Jews or to reclaim Jerusalem. His vision has always been more broad than that. His goal is to redeem and restore the entire created order. He came not simply to be the Savior of the Jews, but the Savior of the entire world. And Satan knows that. So he takes him to a pinnacle of a mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and says, look, man, look, I know why you're here. So he says to him, all of these I will give you. 
That's a pretty bold thing to say to Jesus, the Son of God. We have to remember that when Jesus, when, when Satan was cast out of heaven, he was cast into the realm of the world. And he was given a certain realm of dominion to operate for a period of time, a certain realm of authority. He's called the prince of the power of the air. He has dominion over this broken world system. And what he's saying to Jesus is this, look, man, you don't have to go do that cross. You don't have to go do the thing that God's, you don't have to go there. I'll give it up, man. I'll give it up. I'll give you my dominion. I'll give you my influence. And then he shows his true heart when he says, all you got to do is bow down and worship me. Probably the least tempting of all the temptations, right? (laughs) It's like, dude, I created you. I'm not bowing down and worshiping you, right? But here we see the theological insanity of a heart broken from the life of God, the same theological insanity that inhabits each one of us because each one of us has that same exact desire. We want to be the center of the universe. We want to be God. We want to be worshiped. We want to be served. We want people to tell us how wonderful we are, how intelligent we are, how beautiful we are. We want people to revolve around us because we want to be the center. But there's only one truly glorious one who belongs at the center of all things, and that is God. And we find our rightful place orbiting around him for his glory, living not for our good, but for his, not for our sovereignty, but for his And Satan is inviting Jesus into cosmic treason, saying, look, man, join me, and I'll follow you. But by following, he would, of course, be abandoning. Then Jesus said to him in verse 10, be gone, Satan. This This one's done, man. For it is written, I love it, once again, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. There's only one path to life. That's by following the giver of life. There's only one path to ultimate blessing, and that's by loving and following the one who blesses. There's only one God who is worthy of my worship, and he's not you, and he's not me, and I will follow him. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. You need to realize what was at stake during the course of this this temptation. Had Jesus yielded to temptation at any point over the course of this event, all hope in the entire universe would be lost. Because the hero of the story, the only hero, would have failed. And in fact, the very character of God would have been compromised. An unthinkable thing. But where every other human had failed, Jesus succeeded. Where every other human proved unfaithful, Jesus proved faithful, succeeded, living the life we should have lived, which qualified him to die the death we deserve to die, ultimately identifying it with our sin, not because he sinned, but because we did, and he wanted to be our substitute. He went to the cross in our place, dying the death we deserved, so that he ultimately, when he rose again, could offer us new life. That's what's at stake over the course of this temptation. Now, obviously, Jesus' experience is quite different from ours. In some ways, it's very similar. In some ways, it's quite different. So I want to draw out some principles from this passage that can help us take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, which can equip us to use the Word of God in the spiritual battles of our life. All right, so there are a few basic principles that I just want to highlight. First of all is this. Jesus knew the Word of God. Jesus knew the Word of God. 
He had studied it. He had memorized it. He had spent countless hours as a young man poring over the Scripture, reading the Scripture, studying the Scripture, memorizing the Scripture. You're like, yeah, man, he was Jesus, man. Didn't he already know it all? Remember, yes, but he was also Jesus the man, fully God, fully man. And it says he grew in wisdom and knowledge and in stature before God. He grew in his study. How arrogant are we? If Jesus, the Son of God, needed the Word of God for us to think we don't. How arrogant are we to think we can live the Christian life without the Word of God? Yet isn't that the very thing we try to do all the time? And I'm not speaking as somebody who's over you. I'm speaking as a common struggler with you. It is so easy to get self-sufficient in life. And to ignore this book, which is the greatest gift we have on earth. A revelation of the heart of God. A revelation of His power to redeem and restore. And in fact, the very tool that the Spirit of God will use to change us into the image of the Son of God. We need to make space in our schedule, in our priorities for the Word of God. We need to read it, you guys. We need to be studying it. We need to be theologians. We we need to be people that are actually trying to dig in for ourselves. When Paul was traveling through the book of Acts, he came to this city called Berea. And and these guys in Berea, Paul would preach, and the response wasn't, ooh, it's Paul. It was, hmm, that's interesting. We'll weigh that out. We're going to go to the Scripture and see if what you're saying is true. And Paul said that they were noble. The noble Bereans. Why? Because they were people of the Word. There were people that dug in, who studied, and were convinced that God would speak to them through the Word. We need to be people of the Word. We need to make space for it. We need to make it a priority. I'm not trying to be all legalistic here. I'm not saying you need to have your 10-minute devotional time every morning. I am saying that you need to make regular space in your life to engage the Word of God and allow the Word of God to engage you. I'm not talking about simply getting a Bible reading plan. Some of you have done that, like you've read through the Bible in a year. Great job, man. You get your little patch on your arm. Bible in a year. I joined the club. But, but when you were reading through the Bible at a thousand words a second, were you simply reading it to accomplish a goal or to allow the, the Word of God to get into you and change you? The Word of God is not something to be dissected and broken down for our mastery. It is something for us to come under and love. Are you not just knowing it, but engaging it? So let me ask you something. When you're you're so busy, are you you making space? Instead of listening to, I don't know, talk radio, sports, or whatever in the car, or worse, like 98, whatever, listening to Taylor Swift, you know, turn that off, okay? You're rotting your brain. Put on, you know, seriously, get yourself an MP3, listen to the Word of God, right? When you're walking, throw it on your your iPod or your Walkman or your, 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 I don't know, whatever you got, right? Use the technology we have, right? We're all busy, but you you can create space. You're like, yeah, Steve, man, I don't understand it. I open it up and I read it and I don't understand it. Well, welcome to the club. (laughs) Peter, in in one of his letters in the New Testament, is like, you know that guy, Paul? Man, he wrote some stuff I don't get. He's really difficult to understand. Peter had a difficult time understanding the writings of Paul. We all do. That's why we need to study. That's why we need to actually come and, and learn how to engage it and read it, right? Get, get yourself a study book, a study guide, right? These, these are 
They're there for your, these are great teachers that have, have created these things. We've got some out on our resource center. Keller just produced one in the book of Galatians. And the other candidates and I are meeting weekly and we're going through it, right? To lead us through a study through the book of Galatians. Grab one of those study books and help it lead you through. Do it in community. Study with others so that their insights can inform your insights and your questions can be answering theirs and theirs can be answering yours because as we enter into the Word of God, it's not just a solo pursuit. It's all of us coming together as the body of Christ seeking to hear from the Spirit, right? Yeah, but see, if I don't have a Bible, well, take one of ours, please. But we'd love for you to take one of our pew Bibles. Take it with you. Let it become a resource and a blessing to you. Read it. Know it. Memorize it. Commit it to memory, right? So it's important that you know it, but it's, it's also incredibly important how you know it. Jesus knew the Word of God from a specific angle, and that angle was coming under it, right? We need to, like Jesus, sit under the Word of God and not over the Word of God. So it's important that we not just know it, but we have the right heart attitude toward it. Um, Jesus shows his heart in these, in these struggles in the wilderness, his heart is to submit to the Spirit and to love God. Um, there are many who come to the Word of God for the purpose of mastering it or using it for a purpose. Proof texters, right? All they're doing is looking for a verse that proves their point. All they're doing is looking for a passage that will ultimately bolster. And this is like, man, you see this all the time on Facebook. You have two people arguing over a scriptural passage, neither one of them actually engaging the scripture, just throwing verses at one another. Ha, oh, here's one at you. Oh, that one hurt. Here's another. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's stupidity. That's stupidity. Not just because it's a public display of stupidity, but because it's actually um, undercutting your ability to engage the Word of God. See, we don't come to the Word of God to master it. We come to it to be mastered. We don't come to the Word of God so that we can impress others. We come so that we might be impressed with the God of the Bible, right? We come to sit under it. And so it's not just about how much you read or how much you study or how smart you are, or how much you can impress people or how many arguments you can prove. It's about you coming to know and love the God that is revealed in these pages. There's a huge temptation for a pastor. Like, this is my struggle too, you guys. I mean, you're like, Steve, man, you're so lucky. You study the Bible every single week, right? This is your job to actually preach a sermon every week, which means, you know, you, you set aside... 20 hours a week to, to study the Bible. Man, I wish I could, that could be my job. You know what the temptation is? Temptation is to do this. How do I take something out of here and apply it to your life so that it's interesting and engaging and entertaining and, and, and oh, here's a great insight they'll love and here's a great way. You know what's never happening while I'm doing this? It's never changing my heart. It's not about this, man. We need to... We need to be here. It's about the Word of God engaging us, and that's for me too. I desperately need the Word of God to come in and enlighten my heart and challenge my heart and show me things I don't want to see and give me hope I don't have and, and, and break me and re-break me under the waves of grace. And then from that place, I can point others to the beauty of the cross and the beauty of the Savior. We all need that, man. We need to be under the word, not over it. Submissive to the word, not bringing it into submission to us. Seeking to be impressed with the God of the Bible instead of trying to impress others with how much we know about the Bible. It's not about 
Leading, it's about being led. It's not about controlling. It's about submitting. We need to have the right posture when we come to the Word of God. And finally, that's going to enable us to fight in the power of the Word. When we come to the Word of God and we know it and we submit to it, when we submit to the owner of the sword, we will fight in the power of the sword. And I want to draw just two principles out of this very quickly in the way we see Jesus do this. I highlighted that when we went through. The first thing Satan attacked each time was this, if you are the Son of God. If you are the Son of God. Jesus had just been baptized, right? Just been baptized. And when Jesus came up out of the water, a voice came out of heaven that said, this is my beloved Son in whom all my delight rests. A word from God. Immediately, Satan attacks that word from God. That's going to happen in your life too. God, Satan is going to attack who God says you are in Christ. If you're a believer in Christ, you are covered with Christ. You are given the glory of Christ. You are given the position of Christ. You are now an adopted son, an adopted daughter of God. Satan is going to come in and tell you that you're not. Well, he's not going to tell you you're not. He's just going to ask provocative questions that are designed to make you doubt that you are. And he's going to do it around your sin. He's going to highlight wherever you fall short and say, look, man, you're not a son of God. Are you really a believer? Are you really a follower? And you're going to be like, man, I don't know. Man, I sinned this week. I sinned a lot this week. I don't know. Maybe I'm not a son of God. Maybe I'm not a daughter of God. Maybe I don't really believe this stuff. He's going to attack who you are before he attacks what you do. And that's why you need to get good at using the sword of the Spirit to comfort your own heart and attack the condemnation. I have tattooed Romans 8.1 to my heart. There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. I have said those words tens of thousands of times over the last 25 years as a follower of Christ. You know why? Because that's where I get attacked. Man, you don't measure up. You're not in the faith. Man, you really screwed up this week. You, you claim to be a follower. There is therefore now no condemnation. I am not condemned. You know why? Because Christ was condemned in my place. I am a son of God, not because of my performance, but because of his performance for me. There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. That is an act of spiritual warfare, simply speaking that truth. Because I'm speaking that truth to my own heart and to anyone who would seek to attack that truth. I am reminding myself of what God has said to be true. And in doing so, I reinforce that truth in my heart. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I can't tell you how many times I have been flat on my face, feeling condemned and hopeless because I know how dark my heart is. I know how easily tempted I am. And I find myself before God again. I go there. If I confess my sin, he is faithful and just to forgive me of my sin and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. I am not rejected. I am not unusable. I am not forgotten. I am not forsaken. It's the word of God being brought to bear on the struggle and the temptation and the challenge. We need to get good at 
recognizing when God is attacking who we are, when Satan is attacking who we are in Christ. When you believe in Jesus, you are covered with Christ. And you're not going to ever get free by condemning yourself, by beating yourself up in guilt or reminding yourself of rules. You will only become free as you fill your vision with grace and you allow that grace to transform your heart and free you. And then from there, it goes to the behavior. Then he brings the word of God to bear on the attacks on the behavior. Once we're convinced that God is for us, that he loves us, that we have not been rejected by him and we don't have to perform for him, then we can remind ourselves that he has given us invitations to life, not rules to obey. That the temptation that is in front of me is in fact a temptation to reject the gift of God's blessing. If I'm convinced of the God who loves me and blesses me, I will naturally gravitate more quickly to the blessing he offers, even if it means rejecting the sin that I'm being tempted by. What we see in Matthew 4 is an example of how we need to engage the battle. It begins by knowing the word, submitting ourselves to it, and actively bringing it to bear on the struggles that we face in our life. As we come to submit to the owner of the sword, we will walk in the power of the sword. 